Hi, I'm Helen Uvenin. I'm Paul Rivers. And I'm Tyler Sagan. And you're listening to Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidorik. Thanks for joining us. So before we get into talking about this upcoming Václav Havel translation, I'd, I'd love to talk about the company, which is, as I understand, congratulations are in order in its 20th year. That's correct. Yeah, I started Thought for Food 20 years ago. I was still in school and uh, young and um, naive, and I started this company as a, just something to do over the summer. I didn't have a, a summer job. A lot of my friends didn't have jobs, so we said, well, why don't we do a show? And uh, I was lucky enough to get a private donation from a family member who bankrolled our first production. And I can't say it was a great success, but it was successful enough that I, you know, I thought, well, I'll do it again. And I kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And um, then it got a little too expensive to do productions on my own. And I started just doing them at, at festivals, fringe festivals, summer works, those kinds of things. And uh, about five years ago, Thought for Who did its last production at, at Toronto Fringe. And since then, like, I've been just busy doing other things. I've been other, other people's shows, been hired as an actor on other projects. So Thought for Food kind of didn't do anything for about five years. And so this is, yes, it's our 15th production, 20th season. And it's after a five-year hiatus. So it feels like a, a relaunch, a rebirth of the company. All right. So I'd love to hear a bit about your upcoming show, this, this return to the scene mm-hmm. with, uh, with the memo. Tell me about what attracted you about the script. What what makes it the perfect Thought for Food show? Well, Thought for Food actually produced the memorandum in 1999, and that was the previous translation of this show. And uh, I guess about seven years ago, I handed the script to Tyler and said, you should read this. And I happened to be working for a branch of the Ontario government at the time. And this is a play that is about being caught in a bureaucracy and sort of Kafkaesque. A labyrinth of paperwork and red tape and uh, I was in the middle of that myself and so it strangely spoke to me uh, in a way that I didn't expect a, a 40 year old play from a, a different a different place a different culture uh, and yet it resonated very deeply with me and it was hilarious because these were the, the same people that I was going to work with every day in the same situations I was finding myself in and yet here they were in, uh, in this this Václav Havel play and I said to Helen we have to do this <laughs> But it's it's a big piece. It's it's uh, nine actors, twelve mm-hmm. characters. Uh, it's a full length play. It's two and a half hours. And so, as Helen said, Thought for Food at that point was mostly producing in festivals, and uh, it kind of got got shelved in, in that in the under the you know, someday someday <laughs> someday when the, we have the ambitious, money the ambitious category. Yes. And then uh, about was it 2010, I want to say, Can Stage Canadian Stage. I think they were Can Stage at the time. They were producing a show called Rock and Roll by Tom Stoppard and we went to go see it and we saw this name in the program, Paul Wilson, and under his bio it said that he was working on a new translation of the show and I went, I have to read this, I have to read the script and uh, and Tyler um, tracked down an email for Paul Wilson and we got in touch with him and... He sent us to Havel's literary agent in, in Prague who immediately sent us uh, various versions of the script and um, we, I, I loved it. I. I the memorandum, which was translated by Vera Blackwell back in '68, it's great. Like I, I that was the, the script that I first loved, and the first, the one that I sort of first fell in love with, and uh, and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty great translation and a, and a really funny show. Um, but the Wilson translation is just a little bit. It feels more modern. It feels more North American. Blackwell is, is um, British. She's, she's British, and so the text feels 
like a British play from the 60s. And yet the Wilson translation feels like uh, a modern Canadian play and really sort of emphasizes how, how much it speaks to our time and our place. Paul's been, been very gracious in, in giving us his time and, and his, his insights. Uh, Havel actually had asked him to make the translation, which I thought was, was really interesting. Apparently Havel called him up and was like, Paul! <laughs> <laughs> Translate this it's, for me. It's, it's been a while. You should probably try translating this show for me. And, and, uh, and so they were in constant communication because that was in 2006. They had email. They, you know, uh, it was a lot more communication going on between the Czech, the Czech Republic and in North America than there was in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I feel like being able to talk to Paul about it is as close as we can get to to the source because it was translated with Hobble's assistance. And so you know, we have his notes and his insights. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah I, when we were actually pursuing it the first time, Hobble was still alive. And uh, just as we were saying, okay, I think, I think we can do this. I think we can you know put it together. Havel passed away, and the the rights got put on hold. Like no one could produce a Havel mm. play, and so we were kind of put in this this limbo state for about a year and a half. What a year and a half. Well, they got his estate in order, and then finally we got an email from the, the agent in Prague, and she's Yitka. like, she's like, hey, you still want to do it? And we're like, yes, yes. And uh, in the meantime, I guess I had uh, won Jeopardy and had some <laughs> money put aside, and I, I said, I want to do a show with some of the money that I that I won, and yeah, so it was like kind of perfect timing that we we had we had the opportunity to do this play, and then we had actually some money to back it up. The amazing thing with this play is that yes, it was written in communist Czechoslovakia in the '60s, but it feels very contemporary. I I, I talk to people and I, and I say, oh, it's a play about you know this language that's supposed to make things more efficient in the workplace, and people go, oh yeah, efficient, and they get it, they get it because we're we're kind of trapped in the same systems that people were trapped. In, in 1960s Czechoslovakia, things haven't changed. And even though we're in a different political place and a different geographical place, it's in a different, you know, 50 years later, it's still it's, the same It speaks systems. to the fact that corporate culture is corporate culture. You know, and it doesn't matter apparently where in the world you are, or when in, in history you are. If you're, you know, sort of a small cog in a, in a big organization, you still run into the same, uh, the same issues of of strange bureaucracies and rule and arbitrary rules and, and workplace culture that doesn't necessarily make much sense. And for me, what, what really sticks out about this play is that it is rooted in this almost mind-numbingly banal situation of an office. And the main plot revolves around this idea that, that a, a new language has been introduced to, to increase efficiency of communications, uh, except nobody knows it. And so our main character, he receives a memo written in this new language and Pretty much the rest of the play is him trying to get this memo translated. And that's, I mean, that's the whole thing. And yet, despite the fact that those are in real life very low stakes uh, in the play, as in, as in a, a workplace, those are extremely high stakes. Like having, having that, that document translated is now the most important thing, and it's life and death, and people are, are, are fighting for it and, and usurping each other, and uh, there's power struggles, and uh, all these sort of crazy things are happening around something so innocuous. And so for me, this play is all about the absurdity erupting from the banality. And that's what makes it funny. All right, so we're going we're gonna to lean over into the telephone now. <laughs> and uh, t tell us, uh, as an actor, some of your first impressions of the script. I'm playing that character, uh, Gross. Is the, uh, Andrew Gross is the uh, director of the agency. And um, I, I think this, the script as a whole is 
uh, it's typical of Havel's own writing style, um, where he liked to, to sort of illustrate the absurdity of situations by repeating things in a certain way. And so this whole play kind of travels in cycles. Um, there's, there's three settings in the play, and we visit each of those three settings in the same sequence four times over. And, uh, and there's a series of sort of very symmetrical structural elements like that in the play um, that keep happening. And, and, uh, and certain phrases in dialogue uh, get repeated. But each time they get repeated, they, you know, the characters don't recognize the fact that they're repeating <laughs> something, but the audience has this recognition of, see, oh, we just saw this. <laughs> it's happening again. And so, um, and so from an actor's point of view, it's a, it's a really interesting challenge to take on, to, to make this, uh, you know, on the one level, this play is absurd, and, um, you know, so it belongs to a genre we would call theater of the absurd. But on the other hand, uh, you, you know, when you say that, that sounds like it's really something very inaccessible and, and, and sort of, you know, highbrow. But this play is very very accessible because Havel has a particular way of writing uh, in the in the absurd that just just lands so perfectly in <laughs> on that nice edge between what's real and what's hyper real. Um, so uh, yeah, so as an actor, you're 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 <laughs> you're you're trying to sort of chart your way through this play and as a as a sort of realistic exercise, but you realize at times it just you know, it doesn't, it doesn't play out that way. Uh, things work out much more like, um, like almost screwball comedy at times. Uh, there's a kind of uh, madcap nature to, to certain things, um, that really sort of makes it come alive. But it's a, it's a huge challenge. And that character goes from being sort of top of the world at the beginning of the play to going into this life and death struggle to sort of hold on to control of, of things and then losing that struggle and then coming back and then losing again and you know we see these these patterns repeating over and over again uh, so it's a great workout for, for me as a performer because I, I have to go sort of all over the map in terms of uh, what place this character's in. Yeah I often think of it as, as screwball comedy I think is, is a great way to put it. it it's it's almost sitcom in in feel. Uh, there's a there's a real edge of, of you know political statement and, and intellectual theater sort of running underneath the surface. But you can ease just as easily sit back and watch it and watch these and see these absurd characters uh, do their silly things. And I mean, there's there's slapstick and there's wordplay and um, and it just it gets into almost sitcom territory. Uh, and then, but if but if you sort of sit back and think about it a little bit, you you can start to to process exactly what's going on underneath the surface. That's that's that nice, that sweet spot that this play sits in for me. There's also, Paul was mentioning the uh, theater of the absurd. Uh, but I, I remember reading somewhere that Havel said that some people like to put his plays in like, theater of the absurd and some people like, no, 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 it's very realistic, like kitchen sink drama almost. And, and he does, he kind of like rides that edge. And some of the things that we as a North American audience think are absurd, um, there's characters who are always going, leaving the office to go get food of some kind. They have to go get the lemons or the onions or the rolls or the muffins. And to us, it's absurd. And you're talking to Paul Wilson and he says, well, you know, he's really commenting on like the food lines and the lack of availability of food at the time in, in Czechoslovakia. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, of course. And there's this other weird element where people are carrying around their own cutlery. Everyone has their own set of like, you know, like they have a fork and they have a knife. And they're, they always, they're asking each other for the cutlery and they're making sure that it's washed and they're making sure that it's clean and there's this, this really big deal about this cutlery. And it seems so silly to us. And, and yet, again, Paul Wilson is like, oh, no, that was that was something that Hobble threw in there to sort of rooted in, in reality for his, his audience. 
That's something that they would have, because no one trusted cafeteria cutlery, and so everyone actually just had their own cutlery. It seems like this. <laughs> it seems like this is an interesting well to draw from bureaucracy and the office environment. What do you What do you think it is about uh, a subject matter that, on its face, would appear to be so banal and 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 boring? That is this great backdrop for drama and comedy and well it means that that people's struggles are made hilarious because they don't mean anything because people are fighting so hard to like go get some lemons uh and it, it doesn't really matter whether they do it now or they do it in 10 minutes or, or whether they don't do it at all or you know it doesn't it doesn't really matter that that nobody does and it does work or that the work, whether the work gets done or doesn't get done, or whether this person is, you know, the director and this person is the deputy director, or then they switch places. Like, it doesn't really matter. The agency just keeps on ticking, and no one does any work anyway. Uh, and so you see these people struggling so hard for something so meaningless, and which is poignant on the one level, but is also hilarious. And so I think that's why, why, it's, why it makes this great backdrop, is because the struggles don't really mean that much. And I think so many people can relate because they they spend so much of, of their lives in this work environment. I mean, when you think about it, right, you get up in the morning, you have an hour or so at, at home, and then you rush out the door and you spend pretty much your whole day <laughs> doing this job. And and the, so that's a huge part of your life. And it's not something that is that is overrepresented on stage or in or or even in television um, and so i think people really can kind of grasp that uh, that reality and really enjoy seeing it represented in a humorous way because uh, there is a there is a certain absurdity just to the to the whole process of of doing this on a daily basis so this is our reflecting life <laughs> <laughs> very much so yeah and going in and you know you go and you do the you do the same reports and you do the same bit of paperwork and then you you know around the say 1023 you go for coffee and you hang out with the same three people and you probably talk about whatever was on TV last night which is probably the same thing that was on TV you know last Tuesday as well you know like it's this that this this constant repetition um, that's yeah that is that is very relatable we've had we've what's been wonderful is we've had such great response from uh, like public sector unions for example or, or public sector um, workers who you know gotten in touch with us with us about the show because they're because they read the blurb and they thought oh this reflects my life this is this is me on stage and as paul says there's i mean there's not that many plays happening in this city that that show an office environment and so people i think can can really see themselves in it or, or even if they're you know too proud to see themselves i think they can at least recognize their co-workers <laughs> <laughs> I hope people come and hope they enjoy themselves. I hope they just they come and they and they, and they laugh and they, and they have a good night out. And then I want them to go to work the next day and look around and go, oh, wait a second, this guy is just like the guy I saw on stage last night. And this situation is exactly what they were going through with that that memo and petitipi. And and maybe they can start recognizing that that they're they're trapping themselves or they're being trapped in their own systems. And that maybe that that recognition will help them start moving away from allowing themselves to be trapped in those systems. And we were talking about how it's two levels. It's this political statement about systems and bureaucracy and, and a zany workplace comedy. Yeah, and certainly there's, there's a big part of me that, that loves the idea that people could see this and then, and then laugh, you know, laugh their butts off in the show and then go have a beer after and, and then get into a really deep philosophical conversation about it. 
you know, as they're sort of rehashing the, the, the funny parts. And it's, like Helen said, it's, it's about systems. It's about sort of the tyranny of, of systems that we build that then we allow to dictate our lives to us when in fact we built them in the first place to try and make our lives better. And yet we, we find that we, I guess, as human beings, uh, as, even as individuals, but certainly as a, as a society, we fall into that, that pattern so often and so easily. And uh, I'd love to think that like one person will come see the show and then, and then break out of the system that is, has that is entrapped them after. So as I understand it, this, the scripts, there's a, a language specific to the play. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think Helen brought it up yep. just a few Touched minutes ago. It, yeah. Petidipi. <laughs> Petidipi? No, Petidipi. P-T-D-P? Uh, it depends. <laughs> um, Havel never gives a pronunciation guide to this language. Uh, Paul Wilson told us how he thought it should be pronounced, which was not how we were pronouncing it. And then Tyler explained why we were pronouncing it the way we were pronouncing it. And he went, well, that's very <laughs> bureaucratic. <laughs> uh, we went right. through and, and we said, well, you know, can't just give these actors the script and ask them to like pronounce this language that no one's ever Keeping seen in mind that this language is, was invented by a Czech man. Uh, so there's an awful lot of consonants that, that sort of butt up against each other that, as, as English speakers, we get fairly terrified with. You know, there's five <laughs> consonants that are maybe maybe with a, with a Y thrown in. You're like, I have no idea how to say that. Yeah. So Tyler and I sat down and figured out a, a pronunciation guide to give to our actors. It would be very clear so that even if they were on their own learning their script, they could still figure out a way to, mm-hmm. to, to pronounce the it's words. It's mostly worked. Mostly. <laughs> it's hard, though. I, I t- um, Paul and I both have to... Uh, read a memo in, in Petitipians. I, I still haven't memorized mine. I don't know about you, Paul. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> we'll get some, some of the other actors actually have to hold conversations in this language. And it's been, it's been fun watching it from the sidelines and seeing them like create meaning out of nonsense words. It's, yeah. it's fascinating to watch. Well, I, I, they, I mean, there, there's three of them in particular who, who sort of speak it fluently as a, as, as a language in the piece and, and Early on in the process, I sort of sent them away and was like, "Okay, I don't, I don't even need to know what you're saying, but you need to know what you're saying." And uh, I think after about ninety minutes or maybe two hours or something, I called them back into rehearsal, and they were like, "No, no, we're almost, we've, we've got, we've got down to the last sentence of the conversation, and we just need to piece it together." Because it, just as Paul was saying with the rest of the text, you have a lot of repeated things. Uh, even in their Pachitapi conversation, there's a lot of repetitions, and so they were they were trying to work out exactly what they were saying so that all the repetitions actually made sense and that it would flow back around on itself. Love it when uh, actors are that dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you guys are amazing. That's fantastic. Uh, and it's, and, and the work really pays off. You know, you, you, you watch them just sort of fly with it. Uh, and it's, it's like, it was one of the things that had, that it was, that was worrying me most as a director going into this piece was, oh my God, there's like five pages of Pajitopi. How is this, how is anyone going to sit through this? Um, but in fact, it's some of the, some of the funniest stuff in the show. <laughs> And, and, and they they perfectly captured that feeling. That I mean, I, I'm on stage with them sometimes, but of course I don't have to pretend I, I can speak this language. I'm, I'm stunned and usually kind of very confused by it. But I, but they they speak it so so confidently now that um, that I definitely have that alienated feeling, like when you're in a room with a bunch of foreign language speakers and you have no idea what's going on. It's uh, it's really interesting. Then language is also one of the systems that's being critiqued in this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that, that's one of the things that, that when I first read it, really jumped out at me as, as being so relevant. Uh, I worked in the public sector, and at the time they were introducing this whole scheme of, 
<laughs> of sort of rebranding the way we speak about things. And so, you know, innovation was 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 quite the buzzword. Uh, and it didn't it, it just stopped meaning anything, you know. And and you I certainly see it in, in politics all the time. The uh, the conservative government. I, I really notice that they whenever they use the word clarity, you know that they mean anything but. Um, <laughs> it always means obfuscation. And you know the Fair Elections Act, for example. Like it, it's all these all these sort of the co-option of language is so prevalent in our in our politics and in, in our corporate doublespeak that that's certainly one of the things that, that I think is really powerful about this show and one of the things that, that inspired me to to want to do it in the first place was this exploration of language and how you can use language just as much as a uh, as a weapon or a system uh, as, as, a, as a way of sort of liberating people or, or tyrannizing them uh, it is now. <laughs> I'm breaking free of the language, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 watching how that how that plays out. Uh, and I might even take that further and say that the um, um, the, the the discussion or the discourse about language is it carries past Pichetipi as a language, but also it happens in the uh, you know beyond artificial language in the in the uh, in the actual context of the play. Um, for example, Helen's character um, is a is a real bureaucratic expert. <laughs> Uh, she's perfect at you know at, at manipulating and, and maneuvering through the system, and she uses language very uh, precisely to uh, to, to uh, you know to say what she meant, and, but to keep certain ambiguities in play all of the time, so that uh, so that she can allow false impressions to happen sometimes to work to her advantage. And uh, I think we all know people uh, like that in various workplaces who are who are just very good at kind of. Um, you know, leaving enough wiggle room behind everything they say that they can kind of squirm out from it. So you have, you've already stated you've got quite a number of actors in this, and you're working at Unit 102, which is a, a nice, con, <laughs> nice, yes, um, intimate, intimate <laughs> space. space. Yeah. Well, we've, we've sort of, ex not, well, you can't expand the space, but uh, we are playing playing the corners, so you, we've added uh, seats in along one side of the, the stage. If you're familiar with 102, there's sort of the main the main audience block, and then there's about a dozen chairs that can be added uh, to uh, the stage right side. And uh, we've decided to sort of open it up that way so that we can sort of have a little bit more playing space. But actually, I really like the, the fact that it's a, it's a smaller, more intimate venue. Uh, it sort of adds to the, to the claustrophobia of it. Um, and it means that we, we, we didn't have to do something like you know, try and build a giant office on a giant stage. Like it, it, it's about a workplace. It's about offices and cubicles. So it, it fits really well into that, that, that small space because you get this sense of people sort of living on top of each other and working on top of each other and not having enough breathing room, not having enough elbow room. And, uh, and everything sort of happens at once and in the same, same space. We were, we were originally inspired when we started doing the, the design. And Paul can speak a lot more to this because he's been the the main force behind the set design, but inspired by the cubicle. And uh, we went right back to the beginning to, uh, was it Action Office 2? That's right, yeah. Um, uh, the guy's name was uh, Probst, I think, uh, for uh, Herman Mueller's uh, company. He developed, the, uh, he developed the actual office cubicle as, as we know it today, although he almost instantly regretted it. <laughs> and that was, I think, in, in right about the same time this play was written that was being uh, developed. And his original idea was to have cubicles, not not in this, not in this, and they wouldn't even be cubicles technically because they, instead of being square, they were actually meant to have 120 degree angles, so they would be more like hexagonal little office areas. 
that would give each people each person a little bit of privacy because prior to that everybody worked in a giant bullpen where there were just a row of desks uh, so this was supposed to be a great innovation well we sort of took off from that that idea of the um, the, the hexagonal uh, <laughs> intention of that and thought about um, uh, things like like the other examples of sort of a totalitarian <laughs> workspace, like a, like a beehive, um, and the and the honeycomb being in a hexagonal uh, form, and um, we looked at sort of examples from brutalist architecture that was really sort of coming of age in that period as well. Like Robart's library um, is a, is a great example of real predecessor, where it's actually made out of a lot of extruded vertically extruded hexagons and the uh, the Czech embassy in Berlin is another example where this you know hexagonal space has been extruded in another way like uh, horizontally and so so we use that hex as a kind of primary motif for the set design and uh, and it's sort of bled into other <laughs> other elements of the design as it well strangely uh, taken over everything <laughs> uh, yeah I'm sure you people come to see the show they will they will notice the hexes everywhere uh, there's lots and lots of, of hexes. It's just it has such a beautiful built-in metaphor of being uh, being the beehive. Uh, it's just so it's too perfect to not not exploit. Right, and as I was saying about the the, um, the play before, each uh, each location is is visited on a sequence. Uh, like we see the the same three places over and over again, and each as it's described in the uh, script, each is basically the same room with different furniture arrangements. <laughs> so um, so that, again, gave us this, this idea of the repetition of the same space, and, and this um, we kind of conceived of what would this building look like if it was a bunch of hexagonal <laughs> rooms, and, you know, what kind of twisted but brilliant but obviously crazy designer would actually create a building like this with this with this sort of totalitarian scheme of everybody being like little busy bees working in this office and so we really sort of built outward from that uh, from from that idea of an architectural plan and um, and then just went wild into into props and other things as well the memo april 23rd to may 10th at unit 102 theater thank you for joining me thank you Mark. thank you <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca. Check it out. Oh. <laughs> that was an intentional pun. <laughs>